option never love another and stand by me all the while take happiness with a heartache Go through life wearing a smile. Oh, how happy we would be if we keep the Ten Commandments of love. Oh, love. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. I'm David Chen, editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Ronald Wright in the upcoming 2015 film Hollywood Adventures, Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very good. Now, I don't know if it's going to be upcoming for anyone in America. Mm, this is a Chinese film that you were in recently, right? It's it, Chinese. It was it filmed out of Beijing. Mm. And... Uh, I think they have four English-speaking actors in it. I've, I've never been in a situation like this before. The script was in Mandarin. And, David, do you know how long a movie script is? Uh, it's usually like 100 and 120 pages long. Um, is Yeah, a first draft is about 120, and they try to get it down to 100. Uh, you figure, folks, you figure a page a minute. Yep. Uh, Hollywood Adventures was... 240 pages long. Nice. And they did a rewrite of it, and it was 244 pages long. They, they made it even longer. Now, does this mean the movie was four hours long, or just yeah. that Chinese is much more loquacious than uh, English is? I think the explanation God is I got was the people enjoy a long and well-told story. And the I have to say the script was delightful. The script had me laughing. It was enormously entertaining. And, and it, in the movie, the, the actors I performed with spoke Mandarin. And in this situation, they had translators off camera on each side of the scene. And whenever they finished a line, someone over their shoulder would point at me, indicating it was my time to say my line in English, which the Chinese actors could not understand either. And then it was time for someone behind me to point at them and to say it was their time to speak. But I think a good time was had by all. Uh, the movie has been released in China, and it's been getting some pretty good reviews over in Asia, Australia, and, and over in that neck of the woods. So if you happen to see it, it's long, but I promise you it's a good sit. All right. Well, um, check it out. Uh, and if you happen to see it and understand what's going on, email uh, Stephen at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. Let him know. The yeah. film is Hollywood Adventures. Uh, it sounds like an English translation of a Chinese title. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that should be should be good, some good stuff there. Anyway, uh, Stephen, we have been pretty busy recently, have we not? I mean, you've been working uh. on a new book. Uh, yes. Our film, The Primary Instinct, is, is going to be released pretty soon. We'll have more details about that during the next episode. Uh, and uh, I have been working on my very first cello EP as well. So we've been uh, pursuing many artistic things since the last podcast episode. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm in fact getting ready to go to Edinburgh in Scotland 
to do the Tobolowsky Files show. I'm doing uh, two weeks of Tobolowsky Files shows live at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So, you, you know, it brings up a question, and this is a question I wanted to ask you, David, because I've listened to your cello uh, CD, which was beautiful. And the question I come up with, it's the same one I'm coming up with, with facing in Scotland. The problem is choice. What do you choose to put in, like your album, what do you choose when you decide what you're going to play? Right, like, so my cello album, which you can find more info about at davechenmusic.com, uh, is basically comprised of cello covers of pop songs, pretty much, right? And so uh, I think you're asking me, like, how did I develop the songs that I chose to go in the album? And there's no, there's no sort of formula to it. You know, it's not as though I had some kind of formula of, oh, yeah, uh, if a song meets these requirements, then I'll put it in, you know? Uh, it's more just a feeling, I guess, just a vague feeling that this feels right. This feels like the correct sequence of things uh, based on my current abilities and my artistic taste at the time. See, this is, this is very interesting you say that because I'm experiencing the same thing in terms of Scotland. I have seven different shows, and I'm thinking, what do I, which, which Tobolowsky file stories do I do and which do I not do? And I find out that they seem to talk to me. They seem to say, well, you have to tell this story. Right. Or you, you have to put this story together. And, s- and slowly kind of shapes come together of an entire, if somebody wanted to see all seven shows, that there would be an arc to those seven shows, and they would know something more about me. It's like a, a scrapbook or a photo album where, where you have different pictures of my life at different times. Uh, uh, Another question I have, and it has to do with the primary instinct, too. A lot of times people think that when you're involved with a creative project, it's all about being creative. But there's just a lot of nuts and bolts work involved with with making it all happen. Like the primary instinct, at this point, the film is done, correct? It is done, yeah. And so now the issue is is getting it out. Yeah, getting it out, which requires a massive quantity of work. Uh, it's way more work than I possibly could have comprehended. And uh, you, Stephen, need to be intimately involved in the promotion of the film. <laughs> well, yes. Exa- One of the things actors do when we are involved with the project is we have to do a lot of talking to the press. And I don't know if you're aware of this end of it, David, but in the last few weeks, I was interviewed by the press for three different projects. Uh, You know that in Seattle, I was uh, interviewed about the premiere of The Primary Instinct. But at the same time in Los Angeles, I was being interviewed for Big Time in Hollywood, Florida, and a magazine in the UK was interviewing me for my upcoming two weeks of shows in Edinburgh at the French Festival. What was really interesting was that I was asked the same question in all three interviews, and it was a question I had never been asked before. The question was, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Now, the first time I heard this question, I had to think about it. I said, I would tell myself not to be so afraid. I spent so much of my life worrying about grades, about girls, about auditions, about making a living, about my children. The list goes on and on. So many sleepless nights. 
If I knew then what I know now, I would say, relax, enjoy. Things work out even when they don't, even when you fail, and you don't even have to be afraid of death. When I was almost killed in Iceland, it wasn't painful. It was nothing, just blackness, except for a brief astral projection when I ended up at a party on a back porch in Los Angeles. Okay, I still have no explanation for what that was. It wasn't heaven. It wasn't hell. But the key was it was not painful. And they did serve iced tea. I got the same question from other reporters over the next two weeks. If I knew then what I know now. So I stuck with my answer. Don't be so afraid. I thought it was a pretty good reply. Now, I'm not so sure. I think I may have missed something. The real issue isn't if I knew then what I know now. We can't do anything about that. We can't go back and change the record. We can't even do that in science fiction movies, except for the X-Man movie, without upsetting the space-time continuum, whatever that is. I'm not even sure the listener can change their flight pattern and be less afraid. We all experience what we experience differently. One man's fear is another man's roller coaster. The real question is not, if I knew then what I know now. It is, do I know now what I knew then? So many of our problems come because we forget. We forget what we already learned. We begin to learn that we're physically temporary with our introduction to the tooth fairy. Our clothes, our cars, our homes are just as temporary, but we forget. We still pursue them with passion throughout our lives. We buy insurance. We rent storage spaces. We move boxes from one address to another, and it all becomes landfill. That's why a promise is so remarkable. By the force of our will, we try to make something more substantial than we are. When I was a child, I built huge towers with my building blocks in my room. It took hours. That wasn't the fun part. After they were almost touching my ceiling, I pulled out their foundation and made them crash. The sound of destruction brought Mom running. She opened my door and saw the mess. She, <laughs> she was not happy. I told Mom not to be mad. I would clean up my room, which I never did. It was too much work. After about 30 minutes of kicking blocks around, I quit and came into the living room to watch TV. While I was watching Johnny Yuma the Rebel, I heard Mom's footsteps going down the hall toward my room. I heard my door opening, then closing. Then Mom's footsteps started coming toward the living room. She stood in the doorway and gestured for me to follow her. I did. We entered the disaster area. Mom told me to sit on the bed. She sat next to me and said, You promised me you would clean up your room. I will, I said. You didn't. You broke your promise. I don't like you doing whatever it is you're doing in here to make this mess, but never break a promise. You only get one. If people find out you don't keep your promises, they will never trust you again. The finality of it all scared me. I cleaned up. It took two hours, and I hated every second of it. I missed my shows, but I kept my promise. That time. 
I knew then what I should have known now. When you make promises, keep them. The only thing that lasts as long as a promise is the regret you have when you break one. One reason why a promise and a regret are so enduring is that they're invisible. I didn't really learn about the temporary nature of my stuff until my mid-30s. That was when I bought my first Clappet keychain. In the 1970s, the Clappet keychain was advertised as a way to never lose your keys again. It was a keychain that responds to the sound of a human clap with a beep. Now, you would think a person would not lose their keys. It's the only way to get into their home. It's the only way to get into the car. They sold millions of clappets. They advertised on all-night television. Slight digression. All-night television was an analog to the Internet in the 1970s. It was a mishmash of music videos, cartoons, monster movies, and juicer demonstrations. It was aimed at the indiscriminate palate of the stoner, which may be why everyone was losing their keys. I spent so many nights clapping myself silly around the house, with the pooch following me from room to room, looking up at me in wonder. She would stare in her dog-like way as I clapped, as if she were saying, Okay, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, do you see me? I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to do what you want me to do. I mentioned that the 1970s was when I bought my first Clappet keychain. I had to buy a second one to find my first one. I had bruises on my palms from clapping, but eventually I learned we lose our things. It's inevitable. Make duplicates, print out password lists, don't count on the visible world. It's highly perishable. Invisible lessons of childhood were everywhere. I just kept forgetting they were lessons. I was driving in my car the other day listening to oldies on satellite radio when I heard the Ten Commandments of Love. Yeah, it's a corny song, as most love songs were, before you could include the lyrics that featured whopping a bitch upside the head. What struck me about the song wasn't just its goofy simplicity. As I listened, I recalled how ardently I believed in this song when I was a boy. I had faith in this song. It was released when I was eight. I was going into second grade and was just about to encounter Claire Richards. I didn't know if Claire was going to be the girl of my dreams, but it sure felt like it in music class when she played the piano. I fell asleep to the AM radio every night, and whenever the Ten Commandments of Love came on, I tried so hard to memorize each one so I could be prepared should it appear that marriage with Claire was on the horizon. I could never retain them. However, I never forgot the faith I had in them. If I knew now what I knew then, faith in an idea is as important as the idea itself. As I drove down Ventura Boulevard, it struck me how right the song was. One, thou shalt never love another. Two, stand by me all the while. Three, take happiness with the heartaches. Four, and go through life wearing a smile. Oh, how happy we will be if we keep the Ten Commandments of Love. Oh, if I knew now what I knew then. Thou 
Visible curriculum that weaves through childhood is fear. School gives us our first taste of terror with Square Dance Day. Then the voltage is turned up with tests, report cards, and bullies. Most of our real instruction happens off campus. My first teachers were monster movies and nightmares, which my mother was convinced were interconnected. I was three years old when I saw my first monster movie. It was a special occasion, the scarring of my psyche. Mom and Dad rarely went to the movies. It was even more rare we went as a family, which made it nothing short of inexplicable that Dad took us downtown to the Majestic Theater to see Godzilla. There were many frightening things about seeing a movie like this at such a young age. To begin with, I was afraid of the dark. I began screaming when they began lowering the lights. Then Godzilla started. I didn't understand it was fiction. I thought the movie was a documentary. I found the deaths of thousands of people crushed or burned by a giant lizard that breathes fire very disturbing. In the car on the way home, I asked Dad if Godzilla was going to come to Texas anytime soon. Dad said not to worry. He wasn't real. I was thinking there were a few thousand dead Japanese that might disagree. Godzilla may have been directly or indirectly responsible for my first nightmare. I dreamt that holes began appearing on the floor of our home, on the furniture, on the walls, and they acted like drains. If you touched one, you were pulled into another place, and the other place was like hell, even though I had no idea what that was. There was fire and horror on the other side of those holes. In my dream, I was trapped on our sofa in the living room, and holes began appearing near my feet. I called out for someone to save me. My father came to my rescue, but as he reached for me, he was sucked into one of the holes. I screamed for him, but he was gone. I cried so hard I woke myself up. Mom and Dad came running to my bedside. Dad asked me what was the matter. I told him my dream. Dad smiled and seemed flattered. He had such a heroic role in my unconscious. Mom held me tight and assured me I was only sleeping. You would think that trauma leads to avoidance. If that were true, aerobics wouldn't exist. Godzilla led to a fascination with horror films. We had four television channels in Dallas at the time. Three were regular grown-up stations. The fourth served up a steady diet of the Three Stooges and cartoons. On Saturday nights, the tone switched to the macabre. They had a show called Nightmare. It was hosted by the same local personality who hosted the Three Stooges. During the day, his nom de plume was Icky Twerp. 
But on Saturday nights, he greased down his hair, wore a black cape, and called himself Zatcherly. Zatcherly spoke in a scary voice and always introduced the horror film with a long, very long, extremely long, menacing laugh. His laugh always gave me the willies. I asked my brother what he was laughing about. Paul said, nothing. I was glad I wasn't missing the joke. Nightmare offered up a double feature of horror. I was too young to stay awake for the second movie, but that was all right. The first was enough to keep me tossing and turning. It was here I first learned about Frankenstein and the Wolfman, both tragic characters to my way of thinking. Both were victims and perpetrators. Frankenstein was a poetic creature. He was a miracle. Man, through science, found a way to overcome death. Now, you would think this breakthrough would end fear. It didn't. It created more. The creature, made from bits and pieces of corpses reanimated by lightning, has a heartbreaking moment in The Bride of Frankenstein when he's touched by revelation. The monster pulls the switch to end his and his bride's life, saying, We are better off dead. The Wolfman was a very sad case, made even sadder by being played by Lon Chaney Jr. He was the accidental victim of his own heroism. Trying to save someone, he is bitten and becomes a werewolf. The idea of accidental infection is a big theme in horror films, and this was years before AIDS and Ebola epidemics. All of the movies are driven by death. Fear of death, escape from death, the inevitability of death. The dialogue has recurrent themes. There are limits to man's knowledge. There are certain places humankind dare not go. I must have seen a hundred of these movies before I was ten. One thing that never changed from my first experience with Godzilla, I still believed they were true. Without question, I knew there were monsters in the world. I've since read many articles that children should not be exposed to horror films before they're 13. <laughs> 13. Perhaps the onset of acne helps one discern the difference between reality and fantasy. Psychologists tell us that not all horror films are built the same. Different types of horror instill different types of fear. The psychological horror of an Alfred Hitchcock movie is that it creates uncertainty. This is different from the very specific terror created by monster movies like Frankenstein or Creature from the Black Lagoon, monsters that had names and faces. And these movies were different than science fiction movies like Invaders from Mars, where a boy's mother and father are captured and pulled into holes underground behind their home, and they're given brain surgery, turning them into Martian zombies. The parents return and encourage their children to go out and play behind the house. Despite having been exposed to imagined terror at too young of an age, there was a bright side. Once you experience fear on the screen or in your dreams, it's easier to recognize in real life. I began to see the same patterns of fear in Bible stories, and they barely caused a ripple in my REM cycle. However, there was one story I couldn't shake. It was the story of Jacob's Ladder. Our teacher in Sunday school read it with a storybook sense of wonder that made it even creepier. Jacob asleep on the plane, 
is certain this will be the last day of his life. His brother Esau has sworn to kill him for swapping his birthright for a bowl of stew. Jacob separates himself from his family so they won't be harmed. He falls asleep and dreams. Or maybe he doesn't. He wakes up to the sight of angels climbing up and down ladders from heaven to earth, up and down all night. A mysterious stranger approaches him. The stranger fights with Jacob until dawn. Jacob is hurt but keeps on fighting. They fight to a draw. The stranger gives Jacob a new name, Israel, which means he who struggles with God. Our teacher told us that Jacob didn't really wrestle with God, but with an angel of God. Well, I didn't believe her. She wasn't there. The stranger said Jacob wrestled with God. He should know. The story had a much happier ending than Godzilla. It wasn't Jacob's last day on earth. Jacob has the courage to march into Esau's camp. Instead of a fight, there is apology. The brothers weep upon seeing each other. They hold each other in forgiveness. Then Jacob and Esau go off in separate directions to start their own kingdoms. Jacob creates the line that became the Jewish nation. Esau starts the line that Torah scholars claim to be the Roman Empire. So they still end up killing each other just at a later date. When mom picked me up from temple, she asked me what I'd learned. I said we learned about Jacob. I didn't talk much in the car. I was still troubled about the story. It wasn't the part about the stranger or the unprovoked attack. I was used to that from monster movies. It was the ladders. I had the feeling Jacob really saw them. I knew it was true. Maybe it was like my nightmare with the holes in the floor and the fires beneath. I thought Jacob's story was a warning that we are connected to forces above and beneath us. Invisible forces. They were part of a secret world, a world that Jacob was able to see just for a few moments. Why? Was he especially holy, or was he just afraid? Afraid that this was his last day on earth, and he was afraid to die alone? Or did his fear give him a type of vision he was unable to conjure on a normal day? And if so, what was the message? It didn't seem to give him any advice as to how to deal with Esau, even though he happened to do the right thing anyway. I knew it was just a story, but we want our stories to make sense, even if they're about monsters. Movies are different from life. They're shorter and simpler. They tend to only show what the people making the movie want you to see. An exception was Invaders from Mars when you could see the zipper up the back of the margin. Movies have specific themes. Life doesn't. For example, I grew up with violence. It was everywhere. There were westerns on television. There were movies about war. In Oak Cliff... Even though we might have been surrounded by violence, I never felt it. Our schools and churches were peaceful. Children walked everywhere all of the time without adult supervision. 
Oak Cliff was the picture of a safe community. Our home was surrounded by nature, woods and creeks, hills and caves. I spent most of my time playing there as a child. Nature is always portrayed as something accompanied by beautiful music in the movies. I learned a lot about nature before I was old enough to go to school. I never saw nature as beautiful. Nature was dangerous. The woods were filled with poisonous things, snakes, spiders, scorpions. It was easy to get lost, especially if you didn't have landmarks to show you the way. I developed a protective mechanism. I heard a little voice. The voice would remind me of where I was. It would tell me to turn right or left. It knew the trail home was on the other side of the split oak tree. It reminded me of where I saw a poisonous water moccasin sunning on a rock. It recalled the location of a slab of limestone I lifted and saw a mother scorpion and her hundreds of babies scatter in all directions at the first sign of sunlight. My little voice became my constant companion. I trusted it. Trust fed belief, and the voice grew stronger. My little voice sat with me in class when I began school. Unfortunately, it didn't help me with my homework. The little voice told me it was far too important to be occupied with arithmetic. That was our relationship for the first few years of my life. My little voice retreated more and more from my life at school. It saved itself from my journeys into the woods. I remember the first time I heard it unexpectedly. My father was a doctor in the Air Force during the Korean War. After his period in the service, he kept up with several of his pals from the air base in Amarillo. One of them lived not far from us in Oak Cliff. Jimmy and Cat were a 20-minute drive away. They had three kids, just like our family, two boys and a girl, just like us. It made all of the sense in the world for Dad to bring us along when he wanted to talk over the bad old days of war with Jimmy. We would go over for hamburgers and hot dogs. The grown-ups would sit in the backyard laughing and talking. My brother, sister, and I would go and sit uncomfortably in the back bedrooms with Jimmy and Kat's kids. We didn't know them very well. We didn't have much in common. We didn't go to the same school. We didn't have the same friends. My brother and their two boys were looking through a closet to find a game to play. My sister was still in diapers. She was sitting in the middle of the floor playing with some jacks. She was trying to put one of them in her mouth. I was watching it all with disinterest when my voice said, Where is their little girl? I was about to disregard the voice, but I couldn't. We had a relationship. I thought back. Jimmy and Kat's little girl never joined us. There was usually so much commotion no one noticed. I started walking through the house looking for her. She was only four. Maybe she was watching TV somewhere and I could join her. I opened a partially closed door at the end of the hallway. There she was, alone, with her dolls. She didn't say a word. She stopped playing and looked at me for an uncomfortably long moment, then went back to her dolls. I sat down with her on the floor. No words were exchanged. I noticed her game with the dolls was odd. She lined them up along the wall, stood them on their heads, 
pulled their dresses down over their faces, and then took their underpants off. Then she turned and looked at me in silence. My little voice was screaming. I didn't know what any of it meant or what to do. My little voice was looking for a way through the trees to find a place to safety. I reached over and said, Why don't you play with them like this? I redressed the doll and turned it right side up. It's better if you play with them right. She took the doll from my hand and said, No, like this. She reset the doll on its head, pulled her skirt over the doll's face, and took off its underpants. I was upset. I left the room and joined the others. I didn't say anything about the visit. The next time we went over to Jimmy and Kat's for dinner, we came in and said our hellos in the living room. My brother went off with their two boys. Mom took my sister with her outside. Their little girl was left sitting on the floor watching television. I sat down beside her. She turned and looked at me. Silence. She got up and walked to the back bedroom and partially closed the door. My little voice called to me again. It reminded me of the patterns I had seen before, shadows and sunlight, dangers hidden in plain sight. In the car on the way home, I said, What do you think of their little girl? My brother laughed and said, I don't know, I never see her. Mom said, Well, she's younger than you boys. Maybe she doesn't know how to play with you. No, I said. She's weird. Mom scolded me, Stephen, that's not nice. She's a sweet girl. It's wrong to make fun of her. I'm not making fun, I said. She's putting her dolls on their heads. My brother laughed and said, that is weird. Mom looked at us from the front seat. We stopped laughing. Nothing more was said. Over the next week, I tried to forget. I couldn't. My little voice began waking me up in the night. It was talking to me on my walks to school and even when I played in the woods. One afternoon, Mom was working on dinner. I wandered into the kitchen. Mom looked up and smiled. What's on your mind, Steppy Doors? Mom, it's about Jimmy and Kat's little girl. Mom stopped her preparations for dinner for a moment. Yes. There was something I didn't tell you. Mom looked more concerned. What, Stephen? I was terribly embarrassed to say anything, but my voice told me to go ahead. Sometimes my little voice made me brave. Mom, she was also taking off the doll's underwear. She was standing the dolls on their head, pulling the dresses down over their faces. Mom sat down. Her face was like stone, unreadable. She said, Stephen... That was wrong for her to do that. I know, Mom. And then she looked at me. What do you mean she looked at you? I tried to stand the doll up. She stared at me and turned the doll upside down again. My mother turned away from me for a second. She shook her head and said, Maybe she's ill. I'll call Cat and talk to her. I don't know if the call was ever made. We were never invited back over to Jimmy and Kat's. They came over to our house every once in a while, but never brought their children. A few months later, I came home from school, and Mom was sitting on her bed by the phone crying. It was hard for me to watch my mother cry. 
She almost never did it except when I was running around the house and she had to call Dad to come home from work to do something, which usually meant giving me a spanking. I asked her what was wrong. She said, Jimmy and Cat, it's their girl. She's gone. They think she's been kidnapped. I was sick. My voice was whispering something unrecognizable in my ear, something horrible. Maybe the police will find her, I said. The police did. She was found in an empty house, murdered. Over the next two years, three other girls from that area were kidnapped, molested, and murdered. They found the criminal. He lived on their street. Senseless, hopeless, cruel, but not unfamiliar. It was nothing different than I had seen on many of my trips to the woods. Nature operates through cruelty. The strong victimize the weak. The injured and ill are left to die unaided. Nature doesn't care about grief or hurt. As I grew older, through high school and college, nature was revered, even deified. I was not seduced. I learned at a young age that those who worship nature worship power. We never saw Jimmy and Cat after the murder. I cannot imagine the weight of their loss. I had no words, no opportunity to tell them that their daughter has been my strange companion ever since the day I met her. I see her often, playing with her dolls. I know now that afternoon she was trying to tell me about the abuse she was suffering. That's why she looked at me the way she did. It's why she took the doll from me and put it back on her head and said, No, like this. I relived the conversation with my mother, wondering if Mom ever called Cat, wondering if my little voice was heard. Not long ago, I was celebrating my wife Anne's birthday at one of our favorite Italian restaurants. There were the happy sounds of a dozen different conversations filling the air. And that's when it happened. I saw Jimmy and Cat's little girl playing in the room. She turned and looked at me. I tried to speak to her. I was brought back to the present when my wife asked if something was wrong. I got my bearings and asked what she meant. She said, your face changed. Did something happen? I told her the story and how the memory of that day in Jimmy and Cat's house kept returning. Always. Unexpectedly. Anne asked if I knew what triggered it now. I had no idea. In the shapeless noise of the restaurant, all I was thinking about is if I wanted soup or salad. And then I saw that young girl's face, her clear blue eyes, her perfectly silent call for help. Even though I was a child myself, I heard her clearly that afternoon. I failed her. I didn't understand the depth of the suffering or the closeness of the danger. I grew up with violence. My little voice taught me there is never one victim. It is no consolation for Jimmy and Cat, but your daughter is still with me. She will always be with me, just as she will always be with you. The victims remain in the most unlikely places in the hearts and minds of strangers who can't escape their eloquent silence. I believe in ghosts. 
I believe they continue to walk the earth hoping to be heard. To that end, I will continue to walk hoping to hear. That was If I Know Now, What I Knew Then, a series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, quite an intense story today. Thank you so much for sharing with us, as always. My pleasure, David. Thank you. Uh, And Stephen, if people want to hear more of your stories in person, live, you'll be in Edinburgh, in Scotland. Uh, And where will you be, Stephen? I'll be at the Pleasance Theatre Cabaret Bar, and I hear it's a very nice venue, And I will be performing my stories from August 18th to August 31st. And I'll be doing different stories every night, pretty much. Well, if you want to see Stephen live, I would recommend you head on over to Scotland and uh, (laughs) check him out there. Find more episodes of this podcast at TobolowskiFiles.com. Email Stephen at StephenTobolowski at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys on the next episode of The Tobolowski Files. Adios.